Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our brother Andrew. Thank you for the, the word that you put on his heart this morning, Lord. Thank you. We, we pray that by your spirit you would speak through him. Lord, we want to hear your word to us this morning, Lord. We want to hear your heart for us, Lord. Uh, and I just pray your blessing over him. May your spirit rest upon him uh, this morning as he uh, speaks to us. We thank you in your mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Lovely to see everyone this morning. A very, very warm welcome to any visitors. Uh, My name's Andrew. I'm part of the leadership team here. Um, And we're working our way through a series on 1 Corinthians. So if you want to hear everything that's gone before, you can go on the website and catch up. But it's taken quite some time. I mean, Paul wrote some amazing stuff. Corinthians is packed with good stuff. But quite frankly, I think he could have been a bit more considerate about preachers 2,000 years later having to construct a sermon out of what he's written. Um, So there's a lot of material, and I won't be covering everything in full detail, but I hope to draw out what God wants to say to us as a church as we look at rights and responsibilities. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Quite a long reading, I make no apology for that, because if you ignore the sermon, at least you're getting the word, which is good. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 23. Paul writes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defence to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever ploughs and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 
If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and do not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I am myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law but I am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Rights and responsibilities. We hear a lot about rights these days. People are always standing up for their rights for this or for that. It's more than 70 years since the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted by the United Nations. A key document. It's not very, that long. It's worth reading. Less than 1,800 words setting out about 26 fundamental human rights. But society feels we've moved on from that. And what were once privileges are now rights. And rights have become human rights. I'm not quite sure what the difference is between rights that people claim and human rights. But there you go. It's quite interesting to see what people think of as a right now. There was a, a young lady on a BBC interview once on unemployment benefit claiming that they weren't high enough, they must be much higher because she had a fundamental right to a holiday in Barbados. And even more extraordinary, there was a prisoner who sued the jail because they were denying him his basic human right to watch pornography. Such is our obsession with rights. It's become an expression of our self-indulgent, self-centred society. But Paul offers a different way and reminds us that where there are, where there are rights, there are also responsibilities. Now I'm going to be jumping over a bit because of the way Paul constructs, but I hope you'll be able to follow me and hear what I hope God is saying to us this morning. Just to set the context, in chapter 8 that we looked at last week, Paul was talking about rights and responsibilities regarding food that had been sacrificed to idols. And, and Rod was saying we have to operate in love and not just go with what we feel is giving us a freedom because it can be harmful to to other believers who don't see things in quite the same way. And in chapter 9, he expands this and looks specifically at the general rights he has and is entitled to as an apostle. First of all, he looks at his right to be recognised as an apostle. 
Then he looks at his right to be supported by the church. And then he explains why he's not actually exercising his rights. He's foregoing them. Uh, Because he has an overriding responsibility to preach the gospel. So let's have a look at, at these rights and responsibilities and see what they can say to us as New Life Christian Fellowship, as Christians, 2,000 years later. First of all, there's Paul's status as an apostle. Now, he needs to address this because there were a number of Christians in the Corinthian church who undermined his position. We saw several weeks ago how there were factions. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. And they were building up some leaders and tearing others down. And this was because they had a false understanding of leadership. Their perception was that apostles should be masterful. They should be domineering, authoritative, and be able to exercise their rights and authority to rule the church. And because Paul wasn't doing this, he obviously wasn't tough enough, big enough, important enough to be regarded as an apostle, so therefore they could ignore what he said. So it's important at the start of what he's saying, that Paul sets out his credentials as an apostle. And he does this by providing the evidence, not the perception, but the evidence. First of all, he had seen the risen Jesus. This was what marked out the original group of apostles. They had been with Jesus. They had seen him die. They had seen him resurrected. And although Paul was once an opponent of the church, he had had this amazing experience on the road to Damascus where the risen Jesus had appeared to him. A literally life-changing experience that marked out Paul for a specific and special ministry as an apostle. And the fruit of this, amongst others, was that he had come to Corinth He had preached the gospel and he had founded the church there. And although this is some time later, he's reminding the Corinthians they owed their very existence as a church to his work as an apostle. And although he'd been away for a number of years, he had continued to provide wise and fatherly advice. As he says at the beginning, are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Surely to you I am, for you the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He had been exercising the ministry of an apostle to their benefit. So he's saying, forget the perceptions, look at the evidence. And that's what we should always do in seeking to grow and to learn. Look at the evidence. What does scripture say? Right, so that's establishing his authority to speak into the lives of the Corinthians. And then he sets out the rights he has as an apostle. The right to food and drink. It was customary at that time. Hospitality was important. And whenever preachers were visiting, it was was right to treat them to hospitality, to give them food and drink. But some in the church were denying him even that. And it's interesting if you look in Uh, one of John's epistles. He's also critical of an obnoxious brother who's denying the right to offer hospitality 
to the brethren travelling through. He had that right as an apostle to food and drink. He had the right to take a wife with him on mission, as others of the apostles, Christ's brothers did, Peter did. And yet they were saying, no, 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 you've got to travel on your own. We don't actually know if Peter had a wife, probably not. But he had the right to, and he was just reminding them, I've got my rights, I do have my rights. And in particular, the right to financial support. And this is important, because he uses a whole lot of evidence to show that a church should support those who preach the gospel. And he draws on evidence of a whole range of material of gradually increasing importance. He uses the example of military life. You don't pay to be in the army. If you're serving your country as a soldier, you get paid, you get rewarded for it. If you're working in agriculture, you get the benefits. If you're working with vines, you get to eat the grapes, drink the wine. And he's an example from Mosaic law. Okay, it's natural in the world. What does the church say? Look at the law. Moses said you should benefit. He actually, it's quite an interesting one because he quotes an example that the ox should not be muzzled while it's treading grain. In other words, you don't put something over the, the ox's mouth to stop him having a share of the grain. You let him feed because this is encouraging him to keep working. You pay the preachers to encourage them to keep preaching. And then there was Levitical practice, the practice of what happened in the temple. God specified that the priests should get their living from a share of the offerings and the sacrifices that were brought in. And then, as if that's not enough, the trump card, Christ's command. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. It's an inherent principle that those who preach should be financially supported. Now, God willing, James will be starting with the church full-time in September. And although I'll be talking later about this morning about waiving rights, we are not going to ask James to waive his rights to be paid. That would be wrong. And as a church, we need to be generous and to support James and Jess as a family as they come to minister as part of the team here. I was looking earlier in the week at the average giving for this year. We need to be an even more generous church because at the moment we can afford just about to pay James and not have anything left over. But there is a principle inherent in life, in law, in practice and in Christ's command that we should support people. So one of the responsibilities we have is to think about our giving and to be generous so that we can support people who are working for us full-time. That's an aside, a, a, a right that we're not going to take away. Paul says, I have rights. He set this out. 
I have my rights, you've been denying them, but I have not used any of these rights. And this is where I think we've got a lot to learn, because we can get caught up in the world's obsession with rights and always want to exert my rights. I've got a right to serve. I've got a right to speak. I've got a right to be heard. I've got a right to get my own back on somebody who's insulted me. I've got a right to turn my back on them because they've insulted me. I've got a right to get my own back. It's very easy to get caught up with what we see as our rights. But Paul says there's a better way. Integrity is more important than claiming one's rights. That's what it means when he says, I'm not writing this in the hope that you'll do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. The boast is that he could preach the gospel freely. He didn't want people saying, oh yeah, he's only doing it because he wants the money. I'm sure many of you have been saddened on occasions when you've seen certain American televangelists with their sharp designer suits, their gold-plated backdrops, their helicopters, constantly reminding you of how you can give in to their ministry. Money, money, money. It doesn't do anything for their integrity. I've used this as an example before, but I'm much more impressed by that ministry which says, we believe your gifts and tithes belong to your local church, but we're going to send you material to bless you anyway. We have a right to be paid for the material we've produced, but we're going to waive that because we want to bless you. And Paul wants to be free of any charges. And in particular, in the Corinthian setting, some of the more influential and wealthy people would like to pay the preacher to say, what they want him to say. Preachers must always be free to preach the truth fearlessly. And in society today, that's becoming increasingly difficult. But integrity is more important than claiming one's rights. And that's something we can apply to ourselves. To be seen to be right, to be seen to be godly, is more important than getting your own way. To forgive is much more important than to exercise your right for revenge. Integrity is more important than claiming one's right. But also, Paul says, we have obligations. He felt under such such drive, such a passion for the gospel. It was his obsession to preach the gospel. Nothing was going to hinder him. And the fact that, you know, he, would, he wasn't going to only preach if he got paid because he had this obligation from the Lord to preach. And being faithful to that was more important than his rights. And he had this overriding trust to discharge that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge. Nothing should come in the way of, of the gospel. Nothing should hinder the gospel. So, taking all these things into consideration, he's saying, no, I'm not going to enforce my rights. I do not want to do anything 
that would have a negative impact on you as a fellowship or brothers and sisters or would stop people hearing the gospel. I have my rights, but I'm not going to use them. Which brings us on to rights and responsibilities. Because as I said before, so often today, people are keen on their rights, but not about their responsibilities. Paul's key principle, which was actually set out in chapter 8, he says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block. Everything we do should be done in love. We put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. I've heard people say, I'm not going to be a doormat, I'm going to let people tread all over me. Actually, if that's going to win somebody for Christ, it's a price worth paying. I mentioned earlier the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Very interesting document. And I think those people who are going on about human rights should read it. Um, What sort of things are in there? Obviously, the right to life and liberty. The right not to be a slave or to be tortured. Interestingly, there's a life and the right to be recognised as a person. Interesting, you've got a right to be recognised as a person, a right to life, but there's not actually anything in there about a woman's right to choose whether or not to terminate a pregnancy, despite what we hear in the press. There's a right to religious freedom and expression of thought. There's not the right to enforce your views on a part of the United Kingdom that's already voted against that. It's interesting to make sure we know what rights are there. But I digress. What is important is that Article 29 says this, everyone has duties to the community in which alone the free and full development of his personality is possible. What does that mean? The Universal Declaration of Human Rights enshrines the principle that you can't actually have rights without exercising responsibilities. We are part of a society, a community, where we need to look after each other. And that's a secular view that is even more true in the church. We have responsibilities. And in particular, Paul's overriding passion is we have a responsibility to the gospel. It's our mission statement. The Great Commission. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's our mission statement. It's not an optional extra. It's a responsibility we have to tell people that Jesus loves them, that Jesus died for them, That no matter how good they think they are, however hard they try, however much they give to good causes, they're never going to be good enough to earn their salvation. They can only receive it through faith in Christ. That is the message we have to share. That's our responsibility. 
And, and Peter writes to Christians, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Bit of a mouthful, but it's interesting the way he phrases that. It's not always be prepared to preach a 20-minute sermon on the resurrection. Not have all the theological answers, philosophical answers, metaphysical answers to every question anyone's going to be asking. But just give the reason why you have hope in Jesus. Simply telling your own story, what he's done for you. And Paul writes to the Colossians, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. We have a responsibility to to share the gospel. Yes, we have other responsibilities. We have a responsibility to worship the God who has saved us. We have a responsibility to love and forgive one another in fellowship. But in terms of the world, we have a responsibility to share the gospel. And Paul says, I want to make the most of every opportunity. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. It's echoing what he wrote to the Colossians, make the most of every opportunity. And he goes on to say, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I may save some. So when he was with Jews, he drew on his Jewish background to be able to share with them. When he was with Greeks, he drew on his non-Jewish, his Roman citizenship, his knowledge of the Greek world to minister to them. So does this mean a sort of chameleon Christianity we just blend into the background, go along with what everyone else is doing to make them feel comfortable and unchallenged? That's not what he means at all. And certainly, if you're ministering to drug addicts, you don't want to become a drug addict. But you want to get alongside them. So what Paul is saying here is, so there's no compromise on truth. It's the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ alive today. And faith through him, salvation through faith in him alone, not our own efforts. No compromise on that. But how you communicate that is flexible. How are you going to get the message across in a way that people will understand? It's identifying points of commonality so that they will hear what you're saying and not just react against it. It's removing barriers to faith. In fact, it's serving to be able to remove those barriers. Somebody is struggling. They're not a Christian. They need to hear the gospel. What can I do to remove all those barriers that prevent them coming to faith? So let's just have a look at some of the barriers there are in evangelism. Language. 
It's so easy as Christians to slip into the jargon, to pick up the language of church, that an increasingly secular society doesn't understand. If you talk about hell, they think, oh, that's where all the wicked people go and have a party. If you talk about sin, isn't that something to do with diets these days? We laugh, but people have different concepts, so we need to tell our story in simple language that people can understand. Legalism. Oh, it's so easy to expect people to come up to our standard straight away. It was the problem that the Jewish Christians in the early church had. They expected everyone becoming a Christian to be circumcised and to follow all the Jewish practices. And we set demands for people to give up their sin before they come into the church. They come into the church because they need Jesus and he will convict them of their sin. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, not us. And so easy, we can drive people away because we judge them and condemn them. So don't require perfection. Extend grace. And as more and more people come in with secular views and baggage and life problems, it's going to be harder for those of us who have been Christians a long time to get alongside them and to love them. But that's what we have a responsibility to do. Sorry, I love my alliteration, so it's getting a bit contrived now. Loggerheads. So often when people are criticising church, Christ, Christianity, we want to argue. We want to prove them wrong. We want to show how their view is wrong and ours is right. But very rarely will you argue people into the kingdom of God. They've got their prejudices already. They've got their fears, their thoughts, their understanding. You're not going to persuade them otherwise. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Show them love. Don't try to disprove another point of view, but try and understand where they're coming from. Why are they so anti-Christ? Why are they so anti-church? Show them love. And then location. Find common ground. Find something you've got an interest in. Common ground. It will enable you to build friendships and conversations and earn the right to share the truth. What does this look like in practice? Let's have a case study. Paul in Athens, in Acts chapter 17. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. He didn't go, you've got all these stupid gods and they're not gods, they're rubbish. That Zeus, nah, doesn't exist. Apollo, no. He didn't go in all theological guns blazing. Now he goes on, as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So he's finding some common ground. It's interesting, all these gods, and you've got one you don't really understand. That's curious. So you're 
You are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. So he doesn't criticise their collection of gods. He doesn't say your gods are all false. He doesn't criticise them for their weird religious practices and their feasts. He's actually saying, it's really good you worship this unknown god, but you're not doing it right. Let me explain who this god is. Let me introduce you to him. He's the creator of the world. And he loves you. And he wants to know you better. Um, I can give another example. Um, Joy's mum remarried a few years ago and she acquired two lovely stepbrothers and stepnephews and stepnieces. One of them, Luke, is an amazing guy, Luke Greenwood. He's um, tattoos, dreadlocks, not your typical smart church leader, but he has a gift for reaching people. Um, um, they had, there was a, a gay pride march, I think it was in Brazil, and some of the churches were saying, oh, it's terrible, you can't have anything to do with this. These people are, are sodomites, they're awful, have nothing to do with them. His team went down there with bottles of water, chilled water, and the water just had a text on them, in effect, God loves you. Not criticising, not condemning, just saying, it's a hot day, have a bottle of cold water. And that spoke to people. Why are you doing this? Because Jesus loves you. Why are you criticising us? Because Jesus loves you. We need to remove the barriers to evangelism by serving others and living out what, we, what we're preaching. There's a saying that's very often attributed to Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. It's actually one that's grown up over time and isn't actually what he said. Because we do need to use words at some point. We need to stress out very clearly. I mean, you can't just love people and expect them to drift into the kingdom. We have to come to that point when we explain Jesus loves you. This is what he did for you. This is how you get salvation, how you receive salvation. But what he actually said, and this was to the, the Franciscan order of friars, all the friars should preach by their deeds. In other words, the way you live is a form of witnessing, is a form of evangelism. And if you're all very holy and sing the songs and say all the right things on a Sunday and then go into work and you're swearing and you're cheating and you're flirting, that's not a good example. But if you're kind, if you're thoughtful, if you're considerate, that speaks volumes. We need to serve others to earn the right to salvation, to speak salvation into their lives. So a final thought. As today is the end of Wimbledon and the men's final, serve to win. Tennis players need to serve to win. We need to serve others to win the right to speak into their lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that because of Jesus, 
we have the right to eternal life. Not because of ourselves, but because of him. Not because of our own goodness, but because of the cross. And Lord, that is the only right we need to exercise. So Father, help us to be responsible to others as we live our lives this week. Help us to respond in love and service, both to one another within the church, but also to all those with whom we come into contact. Lord, help us to be responsible to our brothers and sisters, to encourage them, to love them, to support them. Help us to be responsible in our giving so that we can be generous and supporting of James and Jess as they come to us. Lord, help us to be bold in our responsibility to share the gospel. And Father, we thank you that we don't have to do this in our own strength, but you provide us with your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you will, your Spirit will flow through us today and this week, that we might serve others to win them for you. Amen.